endangerment narrative about crops has always been tied up with ideas about human communities disappearing or being transformed out of existence. So often the conservation work has focused on the seeds while assuming that the inevitable trajectory for their cultivators is one of disappearance. There's a broad consensus around the endangerment of crop diversity, even among folks who disagree on almost everything else. Scientists, activists, policymakers, and even corporations recognize the diminishing global diversity of the plants we grow for food. But Helen Ann Curry, my guest for today's episode, says, not so fast. This story, or endangerment narrative as she calls it, doesn't always reflect local realities. And our failure to see diversity where it survives and thrives leads to missed opportunities for preserving it. Curry joined me to talk about her new book, Endangered Maze, Industrial Agriculture and the Crisis of Extinction. Helen Ann Curry is an associate professor in the Department of History and Philosophy of Science, University of Cambridge, and a fellow of Churchill College, Cambridge. She researches and teaches the history of recent science and technology, especially as it relates to food and agriculture. Welcome to Real Food Reads, Helen. Thanks so much for having me here. Um, So let's talk about the title, (laughs) Endangered Maze. Um, I've read a lot of books about food and agriculture, and most of them do pretty much what I think they're going to do. You know, I look at the title, okay, Endangered Maze, Industrial Agriculture, and the Crisis of Extinction. And I think, okay, this book is going to tell me how maize, which is another word for corn, by the way, is disappearing because of a number of threats and probably emphasize how urgent this crisis is and why we need to act now to stop this from happening. Um, of course, I got a couple of pages in and realized, ooh, you're, you're doing something different here. Um, you're talking about the narrative of endangered maize. And I got really excited because this idea of the power of the stories that we tell is at the heart of our work at Real Food Media. Can, can you share some of your thinking around what you call the endangerment narrative? What is it and why you chose to write about it? Absolutely. It's a great place to start. And I appreciate you pointing out the fact that the title, um, I think, hopefully draws readers in who have these concerns about endangerment that we're so often presented with, not just in relationship to uh, crop diversity and the foods that we eat, but, you know, endangerment as a narrative more generally as as a a crisis that we face with respect to biodiversity in general, um, perhaps with civilization itself, right? We're really saturated with stories about the possibility of things disappearing, going extinct, uh, really even ourselves. There's a whole history to the stories that we tell about what makes things endangered, what makes crops in danger of disappearing. That changes over time, the drivers of that narrative, Mm -hmm. the particular shapes that it takes. um, These have their own history and can tell us things about about culture, about politics. Um, They can tell us things about about race uh, and about the relations between different human communities, about imperialism. And these are all things that I try and tease out um, of uh, what what I think we might 
uh, intuitively think of as a kind of inevitable trajectory that we're all experiencing um, into something that actually has been crafted and, and constructed over time, right? That, that we have created a story about endangerment. I mean, it's up to us to decide what elements of that story really are helpful. So basically, the book title, Endangered Maze, refers less to a description of reality than to a story that we tell. And I found that your role, um, I, I, love, I love this kind of trope of writing or of, you know, documentary films sometimes do this as the the um the narrator as kind of detective <laughs> and I was sort of getting this this vibe from you sort of your role as the author and researcher was to uncover how true is this narrative what kinds of interventions does it lead to is the narrative useful and is there a more accurate and helpful way to tell the story yeah. And, you know, I think, especially before we get too much further in the conversation, I do mm -hmm. want to say that I think there is a, a real problem uh, in the world uh, in terms of the diminishing diversity that we see in the crops that we eat, the foods that make it to our tables, both in terms of the number of, of species that we uh, currently cultivate at scale around the mm -hmm. world, and then the genetic diversity within them. So this is not a, uh, an attempt to debunk uh, this idea that right. our agricultural systems have led to transformations that may not be serving our best interests. It's more a reflection on how we nuance our accounts of endangerment um, mm -hmm. so that we don't run roughshod over, um, for example, opportunities to, to preserve diversity where it remains or to encourage its flourishing in, in different kinds of spaces. I'm wondering if you could situate us historically. Maybe there's a, a story that sort of illustrates an early example of how endangerment is deployed. I think it's really important to recognize that a common story that we hear about the industrialization of agriculture, the breeding of crops to be more productive, but also um, less genetically uh, diverse, uh, leads to a loss of diversity in, in crop species. That general account is one that has its its early origins in the late 19th century and which is entirely tied up with the emergence and intensification of plant breeding as a science and as a professional practice in Europe especially uh, also the United States and and, and elsewhere uh, in those those later decades of the 19th century and the idea very much was that, professional breeders who were working with strains of particular crop plants would be perhaps hybridizing, but, but mostly selecting those from generation to generation, producing crops that would perform more predictably for farmers, including across a variety of different environments. And that practice of breeding and the kind of industrial production that developed alongside of it an assumption that followed on from that was that it was in farmers' best interest to purchase or obtain the lines produced by professional breeders and, and put on the market by uh, emerging seed companies, that they would 
have better outcomes as farmers if they did. So farmers would naturally transition to the varieties being put out by breeders with the effect that farmers would then abandon local lines that they had been growing in their region or that they'd been saving on their farm from year to year. So you have breeders producing ever more predictable uniform varieties on the one hand, uh, and then you have farmers uh, abandoning the, the more diverse, heterogeneous things that grew in different spaces as well. That's the sort of kernel of the early uh, extinction narrative, this idea that farmers are abandoning crops in preference for breeders' varieties, that this is actually good for agricultural production. And yet it created a kind of worry for breeders uh, and for others involved in agriculture because they saw farmers' earlier varieties as actually the origin point of a lot of the good traits that they might want to see in future varieties. So they wanted to create a, a, a particular kind of urgency around making sure farmers' varieties didn't disappear, even if they weren't going to be grown mm. in the field anymore. So in the 1880s and 1890s, you see breeders in Europe making calls for governments and states to be collecting farmers' varieties and making sure that they would exist such that um, breeders and other researchers would be able to use those in the future, right? So this, um, what eventually grows into a notion of seed banking, has its roots in a way in the need to create urgency about the loss of farmers' varieties mm -hmm. as a resource for the production of, of improved seeds. I think what you're describing is so important and points to a paradox that I think is often lost that industrial agriculture depends on, in fact, depends on <laughs> the persistence of a quote unquote traditional agriculture, or at least the seeds that are maintained by traditional agriculture and, and um, traditional farmers. Um, and so the, you know, the paradox is that, you know, you're saying that oh, these commercial seeds and these hybrid seeds are being promoted as superior, as more modern than quote unquote primitive varieties and that farmers are encouraged to adopt them. And yet the more they do, the more there is this concern and this fear about the loss, um, of the seeds that are the foundation of commercial seed varieties that drive industrial agriculture. Absolutely. And I think, to be honest, that's the paradox that initially drew me into thinking about this topic, thinking about the ways in which the development of certain aspects of agro-industry really depended on uh, an, an underlying kind of alternative, right? Although it's also possible, I think, to break apart some of those categories that you just even pointed to in your comments, I think you said so-called primitive varieties. Mm. Of course, a whole language of modern and traditional emerged around the emergence of plant breeding, uh, mm -hmm. feeling that there had to be a way to, to distinguish quote-unquote improved or modern varieties of plants from all that had come before. I'm finding it difficult not to say quote unquote around pretty much everything that I say in this conversation. <laughs> Yeah, it's really challenging because, well, you know, those categories do work for us um, in so many ways. But I think it is problematic, obviously, to say that there is some 
um, dividing line between what makes a, a crop variety modern and not, right? Obviously, the, the designation of certain seeds as seeds of modern varieties was at the time that that language was introduced uh, about a kind of castigation of, of older methods as not appropriate for industrializing agricultural ambitions, right? The important point to take away there, I think, is about the artificiality of those boundaries. When we say that there's a paradox that uh, the so-called modern agriculture depends on so-called primitive seeds, um, it's also important to recognize that fundamentally, these are all seeds, right? There's a continuum of diversity and a continuum of varieties existing across time. Yeah, I mean, I think another phrase that, uh, if I'm right about this, that seems to emerge from this narrative is genetic resources or thinking of seeds as as resources or as genetic material, um, which seems to me to this a rhetorical need <laughs> to divorce the seed from the farming system in which it lives and evolves in order to say if industrial agriculture depends on this you know genetic material as opposed to the sustainability of the farming system in which it lives right then we can just take the seed out of the farming system put it in a gene bank and uh, maintain it as uh, as a genetic resource as opposed to really investing in making sure that the farmers who steward and and plant and are responsible for for maintaining that seed are able to make a livelihood and stay on the land and maintain their communities and the systems within which these seeds exist. Yeah, and I think uh, the, you're absolutely right. I think genetic resources, uh, for me thinking about this history, it's been important to think of that as a category deployed at certain times by particular individuals and institutions to encapsulate the worldview that you've just described, which I, I might think of as also kind of extractivist or the historian Christophe Benoit calls it the resourcist worldview, but the idea that certain natural materials are resources for industrial development that can be extracted and that once one starts viewing something in that way, a, a different set of kind of relations are are entailed on it. On the one hand, we talked about this concern at sort of the, um, the emergence of this endangerment story that the adoption of hybrid or again, quote unquote, modern varieties would lead to a loss of traditional seeds or, or genetic material that is the foundation of these modern varieties. But there's another kind of extinction fear among researchers and, and policymakers that plays out, especially in the early 20th century, um, in the context of the Americas and the expansion of settler colonialist agriculture, um, which is the fear that native seeds will be lost as native people disappear and that this sort of extinction not only of the seed but of the people who plant and grow it is essentially um, inevitable and that this creates an urgency around learning about and collecting um, and, and sort of salvaging these native or indigenous seeds. And so, and you talk about a USDA employee who sort of 
going around the country collecting and learning about seeds grown by Native American communities. I just found that story very uh very illustrative of a lot of the the things that you're talking about, which is that easily, you know, you could imagine this knowledge being used to sort of help strengthen indigenous farm economies. Um, but of course, the idea is, in a way, you know, precisely the opposite. The project was intended to make sure that settler colonialist agriculture um, could continue to expand as you know native communities inevitably within that narrative disappeared i'm so glad that you brought this up because it it circles back to um where i sort of started in terms of of reflecting on the endangerment narratives because what i hope readers take away from the book especially um and especially in terms of thinking about the frequency with which we hear um accounts of of, of losing diversity in the foods that we eat. The thing that I want people to see is the extent to which, even though often not explicit, the endangerment narrative about crops has always been tied up with ideas about human communities disappearing or being transformed out of existence. So often the conservation work has focused on the plants, on the crops, on the seeds, while assuming that the inevitable trajectory for their cultivators is one of disappearance, right? Mm -hmm. And that that's where the story that you referred to in, in chapter one of um, collectors traveling to Native American communities in the early 20th century, interested in obtaining their varieties of maize, also other crops. And as you've said, settler colonial assumptions there about a certain kind of inevitable uh, passing and, and, and the racism inscribed in that, um, which then, of course, is part of the, the collections uh, themselves that survive as a result of that, right? They were extracted mm -hmm. from communities who who didn't receive the resources that they could have uh, used to continue to develop their agriculture, um, to expand on the diversity that they already possessed, but whose resources instead became kind of treasured objects for a, a collection that had very different motivations. You then see how different people over successive decades aren't always stopping to think about what it means that they're assuming certain farmers will transition out of existence and the violence that is a part of that. It, it seems like the early decades of, uh, of plant breeding, the researchers really were positioned as, you know, researchers and scientists as active, um, in some cases as as saviors, um, whereas farmers and especially indi indigenous farmers were painted as passive and also doomed. Um, but that the view of farmers' role um, in seed conservation has changed since those, those early years of seed collection for quote-unquote preservation and research purposes. And one of the things you highlighted is this notion of in-situ conservation versus ex-situ conservation. I'm wondering if you can just 
define that uh, those terms for us a little bit. Um, and I'd also love to hear if you think they are incompatible or if we sort of can and, and should be doing both. Yeah. So I think I'll start with ex situ, so off-site uh, conservation of crop diversity, because I think that's the model that people are most familiar with from the news, mm-hmm. from accounts of things like the Svalbard Global Seed Vault. That's the the um, seed storage facility that's dug into the the permafrost, basically in the Arctic, and and where many of the world's other seed banks send copies of their collection for for safe storage. There's definitely a very uh, compelling, uh, even romantic, kind of apocalyptic, you know, um, narrative around the the Svalbard. Um, <laughs> Uh, seed bank, right? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. The world's sexiest seed bank, I think, is one way to think about it. But yes, so so that is the sort of um, apex point you can think of in some ways of um, ex situ conservation. It's it's so off site that you couldn't possibly grow the seeds that are in there um, anywhere anywhere nearby, right? Um, it is not a, a an agricultural landscape in the least. Most seed banks, or as they're sometimes called also gene banks, are are facilities that are located uh, much more proximal uh, to the environments from which the seeds that are in them are taken. And they basically, in most cases, uh, an ex situ seed conservation facility, so a seed bank or a gene bank, is a a refrigerated space um, of some varied size where samples of seed are stored, are documented, can be retrieved, can be mailed to researchers in different parts of the country or different parts of the world. But it serves as a kind of warehouse facility for um, plant materials that can be used by especially breeders, but also other kinds of researchers. There are also, I should say, iterations of this ex situ model that are less abstracted from farming um, and and much more tied to community needs. So there are some community seed banks, um, which is a a sort of concept that was first developed in the 1980s, which is um, that you have a again, a kind of warehousing facility, but one that is embedded in a community and much more closely engaged in exchange and delivery of seeds to growers. The community seed bank model actually maybe in some ways you could also think of it as as sitting very close to or almost in the realm of of the other kinds of conservation that you mentioned, which is in-situ or on-site conservation. And the idea there, uh, in-situ conservation, refers to when crop diversity is preserved, not by keeping a sample in cold storage, but really seen as conserved best when grown from season to season, um, perhaps in the community where it originated, but perhaps not, but um, especially through farm-based labor and activity. It really involves seeds being in the soil and being cultivated and actually there being a relationship between farmer and the diversity that, that we want to see conserved, right? As opposed to, for example, a relationship between a technician and a seed bank, um, which would be the the kind of human plant relationships um, more common in ex situ conservation. So those are the, the, the sort of distinctions. Your question also asked about whether they're incompatible. And I think the answer there is definitely no. We definitely want seed banks to exist if we're interested in seeing crop diversity stewarded into the future. 
And today, I think many, many people working in crop conservation would say that it's absolutely essential that they are complemented by more in situ activities, getting back to farming communities, um, communities especially interested, for example, in, in, in food sovereignty and retaining certain cultural traditions over time. One of the key differences, I think, um, tell me if I'm right about this, um, between ex situ and in situ. Um, conservation is that if you take the seed out of its context and put it in a bank, um, it becomes kind of, you know, static or just kind of frozen in time. Whereas if it's being conserved, you know, in the field, it is uh, by definition, it is in the world, it is evolving, it is adapting, it's changing through many different variables. And that's precisely what, you know, at least farmers need it to do um, is to change and to adapt. Can you speak to that difference? I think this also speaks to this notion of diversity as static versus not. Um, You know, you talk about how endangerment narratives tend to presume that we have all the diversity that we're ever going to have (laughs) and it can only decline um, as opposed to diversity being something that can be and is constantly generated and can be increased? Yeah, especially I should say with, with respect to crops. That's the, the, right, right. the claim that I'm making there. I mean, I do, think, I do think we are living through a biodiversity crisis more generally, and I wouldn't want to um, take away from that. But I do think with respect to crop diversity, um, for exactly the reasons that you've already pointed out, it does make sense to think of the possibilities of generating new diversity and of um, making sure that communities have um, the resources and the support that they need to continue developing crops. I think there's an amazing um, subset of, of social science research on seed systems, which show just how dynamic what we tend to kind of ossify as traditional crop systems um, are in fact these dynamic centers of exchange and transformation. And so the possibilities, not just of, of, of saving diversity or preserving diversity, but actually generating new um, possibilities and opportunities are certainly there. Um, and so, yeah, I think that is a, a meaningful contrast between this notion of of seeds being kind of frozen in time in a bank versus um, um, part of heterogeneous and ever-changing systems of, of production. I'd also just point out, because I, I think this is quite interesting and I think it's often missed, you know, seeds aren't not entirely static, genetically speaking, in the seed bank. And so curators of seed banks have to spend a lot of time thinking about whether and how the genetic composition of the materials in their collection are changing. There are some people who think that because seeds are always slowly dying in storage and because the ones that survive longest are the ones that would presumably have more tolerance of storage conditions, that over time the seeds that are saved as samples in seed banks are actually the seeds that are adapted for storage, basically, for the freezer. That's really fascinating because, you know, when I think of selecting seeds that will 
store better? What are they not being selected for? Which is, you know, drought tolerance, flood tolerance, you know, all kinds of things that are happening, especially in a, you know, with climate change. (laughs) Yeah. But maybe good for a mission to Mars. There you go. (laughs) Your chapters are divided um, by different tasks that you describe as the basic elements of crop conservation today. The tasks that you outline collect, classify, preserve, copy, negotiate, evaluate, and grow. What I find interesting is that you really do move from your introduction, which is really around narrative and stories around endangerment and these sort of big ideas around conservation into these very practical uh, tasks and describing sort of the the labor involved. Why did you choose to divide up the book in this way? In telling a history of science, one of the things that I find in my work, and I am a historian of science, I really like to put um, labor and work practices at the forefront. So I think we tend to think of science as a history of ideas. Um, but I think, I think at the end of the day, scientists and researchers, they're workers too, right? They're out in the world doing certain kinds of things because those, those things are associated with advancing certain intellectual objectives, right? So thinking in terms of practice and, um, kind of material objectives, that for me is a way of, of taking science from the realm of, kind of textbook knowledge to everyday actions, right? To things that people actually did in the world at a particular moment in time that have helped lead us to the point that we're at today. One of the arguments against endangerment narratives or crisis narratives that you bring up is that quote unquote crisis blocks thought. And I just thought this was an extremely interesting proposition that crisis thinking leads to hasty actions that may be poorly thought through. Um, This had me thinking about, you know, even just how our brains work (laughs) in the face of imminent danger, like we go into fight, flight, freeze modes and are just not really able to engage the parts of our brain uh, responsible for learning, empathy and creativity. And we have to get out of crisis mode, essentially, Um, and calm our inner alarm bells before we can really engage in creative problem solving and cognitive reasoning. So I, you know, I think this idea is really, really compelling. Um, And I I know that in the activist work that we do, especially around the the climate crisis, we're constantly invoking crisis and urgency. And and I think with good reason, Um, but <laughs> at the at the same time, I think a more cynical view might say that crisis narratives are often just deployed as a smokescreen for advancing a pretty ruthless model of capitalist accumulation that otherwise might face a lot more debate um, or resistance. So I'm thinking here of you know Naomi Klein's shock doctrine and how actual crises and crisis narratives are used as pretext for pushing through. Um, fairly unpopular ideas. I think I was drawn to some of that literature in trying to understand the history um, that I that I chart in the book. Um, not because I saw, say, research scientists interested in preserving crop diversity as having, 
nefarious objectives in mind or, or wanting deliberately to deceive. I think I was more interested in the way in which a fixation on the urgency, you know, the repeated claims of we have 10 years left, we have five years left, you know, uh, uh, extinction is imminent, drove a, a sort of urgency to the salvage mission of collection, made possibly more difficult options that would be, say, more farmer focused unpalatable because they didn't seem to address the crisis, the urgency of the moment. And so it was really this um, sense that the fixation on the imminent crisis forestalled conversations about equity, about justice, about the troubling circumstances facing farmers and communities in many parts of the world. And that in, in this case, it wasn't crisis so much as, as a smokescreen, as, as much as emphasis on crisis, not leaving room for hard conversations, for thoughtful response that would, for example, put, put communities first. And so it's really um, thinking about if we can back off crisis talk, even just a bit, um, does that create space for thinking in a more measured way about what it would take to make sure that justice is served, as well as conservation achieved. You mentioned that um, there are certain questions that seem to be eclipsed when we become hyper-focused on salvage um, or, or you know, saving what is soon to be lost or rescuing um, endangered resources, questions like, what is the future that we actually want? (laughs) What resources do we actually need um, to create that? Yeah, absolutely. And how does our salvage advance perhaps an alternative future? Um, if we feel that we're trapped in this kind of inexorable cycle, are we, are we doing what we need uh, to do in order to create opportunities outside that? I'd love for you to tell, briefly tell the story of glass gem corn that you share at the end of the book and and share with us what you think this tells us about diversity and conservation. I will admit that I, I think I was one of the people crashing the Seed Trust website ordering <laughs> seeds of glass gem corn um, a few years ago. You know, it's, it's like you almost, you're almost framing it as like, oh, the glass gem corn, the corn that broke the internet, you know, because this, this image of this exquisitely beautiful corn just went viral and people started ordering it um, like crazy. So, um, but, but can you tell the story of its, you know, how glass gem corn came to be and, and why this story is meaningful. Glass gem corn has its origins in the, I would say, kind of tinkering um, development uh, of corn varieties by a corn enthusiast named Carl Barnes, who brought together different varieties, including some associated with his parents were from different Native American communities. So some Native American varieties of corn. um, uh, And really kind of we tend to think of seed savers and seed saving as focused on 
heritage varieties that have a history and a past and that we're stewarding something that has been around for a long time. But there's also a, a, a sort of subset of seed saving that is about experimenting and, and developing new things. And Carl Barnes was someone who really embraced that um, side. So glass gem corn emerged from his practice uh, of, of mixing seeds towards the, the aim of developing new kinds. And as you've just described, it's this sort of beautiful multicolored uh, maize variety that came to the intention of, of yet another group of, of seed savers um, and uh, ultimately was kind of offered up to the heirloom gardener seed saver community um, through through a couple of different organizations. Um, and as you say, became wildly popular. Uh, and what I really like about the story of glass gem corn is, is that we so often have stories about varieties nearly lost and recovered in their historic form or of things handed down from generation to generation seemingly unchanged. But here's a kind of heirloom variety, a celebration of crop diversity that's about something new, something different, about someone experimenting, tinkering, mixing, um, about a creative act, right? So not just an act of, of salvage or saving, but an act of, of developing anew. And I love the idea that there can be a conservation movement that would put that as its central aim, as its objective, to um, take on board the production of diversity as well as its conservation. What's the difference, if you see a big difference, between some of the more mainstream approaches to seed conservation versus, say, a seed sovereignty or an indigenous food sovereignty approach to seed conservation? Do you see food sovereignty kinds of approaches as a uh, breaking free to some extent from some of these past assumptions about endangerment? I do, because it, it, the seed sovereignty and the idea that um, it's important for communities, especially indigenous communities, um, to have control over uh, and ability to access and, and develop seeds of culturally important or appropriate crops to feed themselves, to sustain their communities. This is conservation that puts the possibilities for, for human futures at their center, right? Seeds are being saved to sustain human communities in a very direct and immediate way. So not about some imagined future scenario that the seed bank is serving, but the here and now. And so I think there are good instances in which the adoption of seed sovereignty and seed saving as a strategy for community sovereignty, for political sovereignty, really flips the, the old endangerment narrative on its head. It's not about saving seeds um, because we're assuming that human communities will go extinct. It's really about saving seeds will save uh, will protect, preserve, um, give those communities the, the resources they need for, for cultural continuance. That is not the endangerment narrative of old. Thanks for listening to the Real Food Reads podcast. Join the book club and find out about future book selections, author interviews, and other resources at realfoodmedia.org. 
To listen to Real Food Reads and our sister podcast, Foodtopias, look for Real Food Media wherever you get your podcasts. You can also support our content and access premium content and bonus episodes on Patreon. Patreon.